0: in a series uh, on Genesis uh, 2 and 3, and uh, we've spent uh, the last, or last week we started into another section of this passage where we're looking at this theme of testing. So last week we looked a little bit at the geography of of Genesis 2 and 3, so we looked at the mountains, and we looked at the forests, and we looked at the rivers, and specifically we spent some time looking at these trees in the story, and we found that they have two symbolic elements to them. One is that trees are sacred spaces. They're spaces where God can meet with humans. And the second thing is that they're places of testing. They're places of testing. And so we're going to continue on in that story uh, and looking at the test today by looking at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Just one verse this morning. So I'll read it for us. It says, Now the snake was more shrewd than than any beast of the field which Yahweh Elohim had made, and it said dot, dot, dot. Um, I I don't know if I could say this is God's word after saying, but this is God's word. This is the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. So we've got two things that we're going to look at. We're going to try to go back a little bit and understand what would be understood in the ancient Near East when they're looking at the snake. And then I'm going to try to pull it forward for us, a couple applications for us this morning of what it might mean. So for us, I think adding a snake into the story is a really weird addition, probably for most of us, but it wouldn't have been for the ancient Near Eastern people. Listen to what ancient Near Eastern expert John Walton says. He says, serpent symbolism was rich in the ancient Near East. We have already made reference to the serpent who stole the plant of life from Gilgamesh. That's, he's saying that in, in this book, he already made reference to that. But that's only the beginning. In the tale of Adapa, which is a Mesopotamian creation story, Gezitta, which is lord of the productive tree. So just a sidebar if any of you are looking for baby name. Great one right here. Look no further. Uh, Gazita has the shape of a serpent and is accompanied by horned serpents. He is known as the guardian of demons who live in the, li- live in the netherworld. In Egypt, we find serpents everywhere from the crown of Pharaoh to pictures on painted sarcophagi as well as in the Book of the Dead, as deadly enemies along the path to the afterlife. These creatures are associated with both wisdom and death, which is what we'll see they'll also be associated with in Genesis 3. So even though the addition of a snake is really weird to us in the story, uh, especially if you've never, you know, for some of us we've heard the story so many times, you're like, of course there's a snake. But if you if you haven't, then it might be a weird addition, but it wouldn't have been for the ancient Near Eastern people. Um, Snakes were part of their symbolic world. One uh, commentator that I was reading this week said a snake is an ancient meme. It's an ancient meme that's shared with uh, Israel and its neighbors. And so I want us to see uh, something really important that I've kind of talked about implicitly, but I want to make explicit here. The Israel, or, or the authors of the Bible, are always writing into these ancient memes. So they use them. They write into the stories and the symbology of their world. We looked at this early on in the series, where they write into the ancient understandings of science. So they don't say, hey, by the way, God said actually the land is not flat. The earth does not revolve around the sun. Or the sun does not revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. These are, I'm not trying to be controversial. These are just things we know to be true today. But they never do that. They write into the The way that they saw science in their ancient world. And so they use these memes. And it doesn't mean they always agree with their neighbors about exactly what the memes mean. And we'll look at that. We saw that last week, and we'll look at that more today. But they always acknowledge and they play within this world of shared memes. And this brings out to me a very important feature of what the Bible is saying about itself, what the Bible is saying about the God who stands behind the Bible, and what the Bible is saying about those of us who are entrusted with God's story, what we should be doing. Because the God of the Bible is a God who always wants to communicate with people. We saw that last week. When God says, you shall and you shall not, he is being kind to us. He is telling us what we should be doing. So God wants to communicate with his people, but it doesn't stay there. As we see in Genesis 1, the whole earth is God's. And his desire is to communicate with the whole earth. He, he wants to communicate with a small group of people, through a small group of people, to everyone. And that's always been God's desire. And when we take time to notice this at the outset of the Bible story, we recognize that it's not just after you know, Jesus dies that God says, now you have to go and tell everybody. This has always been part of God's nature. God is, a, you know, by, by his very nature, a missional God, a God who wants to share through a small group of people, To everyone else. And so we, as God's people, also have the same calling. We inherit a story. And so we come here on a Sunday morning, and part of what we do is to try to take time to understand and learn the story and worship the God who is behind the story. But then we also have the same calling, which is to live out this story and then to to translate the story so that our neighbors could understand it in the memes and in the symbology and the language of today. And we're invited to share this story not in a colonizing way, but in an indigenizing way. That's another thing that we learn from from how Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are set, set up. They're indigenizing the story into an ancient Near Eastern context so that ancient Near Eastern people can go from being ancient Near Eastern people to ancient Near Eastern people who love and worship Yahweh, Elohim. And as I've been preparing for this whole series, that's co- just understanding this and seeing it week after week after week, and in commentator after commentator, I, I, I have to be honest and just say there's been a lament running through my life, that that is not the story of this place, that the people who came here, came the first settlers came with the story of Jesus, but they also came with their culture, and instead of indigenizing the story, which is the invitation, they call it, we, we call it colonizing, which is they mix those two things together, the story of God and the story of their people, and they tried to destroy the story of the people who were here. And, and so just for me, several times as I've been preparing uh, in the past few weeks, there's just been times where I've just had to stop and just pray a prayer of lament and sadness. As our brother John Johnstone says, that there is no very little indigenous fruit in the church because of this... Action And we all live in the shadow of that. We all understand. And I know for many of us that colors our desire. Like maybe we have a desire to tell people about Jesus. But we know there's this huge shadow looming of colonization in the back. And so it's very hard for us to move forward. And and so I just want to acknowledge that and, and understand that. And at the same time say that there are opportunities for us to share the story in a way that does honor the people. But also can draw them to Jesus. Listen to what African scholar... Uh, Laman Sune says in his book, Whose Religion is Christianity? He says, Africa has many, many colonizing aspects to it, where people from the West brought their own culture and tried to stamp out African culture. But he also says this, Africans sensed in their heart that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Beautiful sentence. That at its heart, this is what's happening in Genesis 1, and this is what happened. He said in Africa that Christianity could help Africans become renewed Africans and not just remade Europeans. And there is that hope for each one of us. That's the hope for each one of our friends, each one of our families, that they could become renewed in the person of Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening in Genesis 1. And so I share this because I know we have this history of colonization, and we, it makes us all hesitant, I think, or many of us. But there also is this great hope that it can be done in a different way, and that people could actually be renewed and meet Jesus. So, that excursus aside, let's talk about snake memes for a few minutes here. The word uh, snake in Hebrew is the word nahash. And if we read through the 30-some times that this word occurs in the Hebrew scriptures, you'll find that it sometimes refers to physical snakes, but oftentimes it refers to a a larger category of beings. Sometimes they're humans, sometimes they're not. And I'm going to call this group chaos monsters. This is stealing language from the Bible, that they're chaos monsters. And to understand this, we'll go back to Genesis 1 to understand what's being talked about. If you read the Genesis 1 story, you may remember that that what starts the problem there is that there's these chaos waters that are engulfing the whole world. And so when God creates, he doesn't destroy the chaos waters. What he does is he pushes them into their place. And then he fills those chaos waters with different animals. And one of them I want to point out today is it's called the great sea creature. The great sea creature. And sometimes in Hebrew, this word is the tanin. Or sometimes in English, it's translated into Leviathan, which is like a massive sea monster, or you can think of it like a sea dragon. And importantly for us today, there's a connection between this Leviathan and the snake that we see in Genesis 3. So listen to how Isaiah 27, for example, puts these two things together. It says, On that day, the Lord, with his relentless, large, strong sword... I just got to say... I, Every time I read this, I want to do it in a, um, uh, what's it called, Donald Trump accent. It just sounds like something he would say, where it's just like too many adjectives. Okay, God has a big sword, and he will bring judgment on the Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan and serpent put together. The Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He's putting these two things together. we, We may not think of them that way, but that's how the ancients thought of them. The serpent, Nahash, is very similar to this Leviathan. They belong to this larger category of meme called, I'm going to say, like a chaos dragon or a chaos creature. So that's Genesis 1. There's this Leviathan that's created. And then in Genesis 2 and 3, we see a different story. We don't start with chaos waters. Remember, there's two creation narratives side by side in the Bible. But in Genesis 2, we start with something different. We start with a desert. Listen to what Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says about this. We think, how is the desert like an ocean? Those are opposite. But in the ancient Near Eastern imagination, the desert and the ocean are both symbols of the nothing. You can have a Nahash in the waters, a Leviathan, and you can also have a Nahash in the desert, which is a snake. In either case, if they latch their fangs into you, you're probably going to die and you'll become nothing. They'll drag you back down into nothing, into the chaos waters or the desert. So the dangerous inhabitant, the chaos creature of the Garden of Eden story, is not going to be a monster swimming in the waters because we're not in the waters. It's going to be a snake crawling out of the wilderness. But in both cases, the sea monster in Genesis 1 and the snake in Genesis 2 are meant to evoke all the same feelings and associations in the reader. They're all part of this larger meme called chaos monsters, beings that would drag us down into the nothingness, that would steal divine breath from us. So as we said earlier, the Bible always enters into these Memes of the ancient Near Eastern world, but it often does so to change them uh, in order to take people from just being ancient Near Eastern people to ancient Near Eastern people who worship Yahweh Elohim. And that's exactly what's happening here. Again, let's go back to Genesis 1 to understand. So God creates everything in Genesis 1, which means that He would create, includes the Leviathan. It's a creature created by God. And then interestingly, in Genesis 1, He looks at this creature and it says He saw that it was good. The Leviathan is good. So Genesis 1 is messing with this ancient meme. For, for ancient people, they would think of the Leviathan and they would think, oh man, this creature is like real trouble. It's real trouble for us. It's a threat. It's so much more powerful than us humans. But in comparison to this God, in comparison to Yahweh Elohim, it's nothing. It's just another big fish swimming in the water. And so this is where the biblical authors are indigenizing the message into their context, but they're also, to use a meme from today, they're throwing some deep shade here, is what they're doing. They're saying, yeah, for us humans, if we run into a Leviathan, it's a real problem. And maybe for the gods of your nations, the Leviathan is a real problem. But for Yahweh Elohim, no big deal. It's just a plaything that he's created. And in fact, this Yahweh is so powerful, and this Yahweh is so generous, that he even shares his power with us. He says, you can rule and subdue it this powerful beast in the sea, which means that we are called to work and we are called to dream into a place where the power of the Leviathan is not used to create chaos, but is actually harnessed to create good in the world. That is the call of humanity. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. That's what we'll talk about next week. So we see that for the Leviathan, but the same is true of the snake that we meet in Genesis 3. It's created by God, It's just an animal, so then there's something good about it. Now, we may miss this because it says the word shrewd here, and and for us, we usually use the word, or that word has negative connotations for us. But listen to what Hebrew expert Ian Proven says about this. The word shrewd, the word in Hebrew arum, has both positive and negative connotations in the wisdom literature. So it can connote either prudence, which is a good thing, or craftiness, which is a bad thing, depending on the context. So the introduction is actually ambiguous. Is this serpent, who is more a room than any of the wild animals, the possessor of a virtue, wisdom, that humans should cultivate, or is he the possessor of a vice that the truly wise should avoid? There's two possibilities here about the snake. It could be an agent of chaos. It could be a chaos monster. But it also could be an agent of Yahweh Elohim. It could become this source of wisdom. And the question for for us is, which will it choose? And we'll get there in a second. But before we do, I want to focus on one other thing that this passage says about the shrewdness of the snake. It says the snake is more shrewd, more shrewd than any beast of the field that Yahweh Elohim has created. And in the sparse economy of the text, as Robert Alter calls it, in, in the few words, this is an interesting detail, that I, want, I think we need to pay attention to. It's saying that the snake is not just a room. The snake is not just clever. The snake is the most clever of all the different beasts. It has the highest status, which should send our spidey senses off a little bit. Because the, the snake could pursue this path of goodness. It could, be, it could see itself as being the most a room, the most clever species. It could say, oh, that's what a gift from God. And then it could become this being of wisdom, that could bless the rest of creation. But because it is, it is the most a room, it also has another challenge. It could say, you know what? I'm like the smartest animal out here. I'm like, why, why am I even stuck in being an animal? Why am I stuck in being a snake? Like, I should be promoted, basically. And that's one of the ways, that's, well, that's what's happening in this story. And this is a challenge for us, especially if we read forward into the story, we'll realize that for people who are highly gifted, for people who are given places of prominence in the story, the, the temptation towards pride goes up. Way, way, way up. And this is made explicit elsewhere, like I said. Listen to this passage in Isaiah 14, which is often attributed to, this, this, to the Satan, uh, to the snake, but is actually about a king in the ancient Near East. You said to yourself... And listen for all the ancient, like the, all the language, that, the geography that we've already been talking about in Genesis 1 and 2. You said to yourself, I will send to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest cloud, and I will make myself like the most high. All this language of this king wanting to go up, to become like a god. He's already powerful in the world, but he says, you know what? It's not enough. I'm the king, I'm powerful, I'm overseeing this nation, but I could go another rung higher. It's pride. And listen to what God says about this king. But you will be brought down to Sheol, to the underworld, to the deepest regions of the pit. Rather than going up towards the God, you will be brought down. Those who have high gifting, those who have lots of power are susceptible to pride, the Bible says. And, and this I think is a moment for pause for us. And you... and Those of us in this room might be like, you know what, I'm not super gifted, you know? I'm just, I'm doing okay. I'm very medium, which is a very Canadian thing to say, you know? I'm just assistant to the regional manager. That's (laughs) who I am, right? So we live, but but I want to point out, as I've tried to do several times in this series, that we live actually in one of the most unique moments in history, where we can make the world revolve around our wants and our needs. I quoted Yuval Harari, who is a, a secular historian, a couple of weeks ago. And you know what his word for us is in this moment of history? We're gods. We are like gods. We have powers that no other people in no other time in history have had. And so we, and I would say on top of that, our culture, what it does is it encourages us to move up to push ourselves up, to ascend the mountain, to make ourselves like the Most High. And because of the power we have at our fingertips, even though we may not think of ourselves like this king, there is the same susceptibility that we have to pride, to forget God, to pretend like we are gods. Because you know what? I don't need God to turn my phone on. I don't need God to deliver. I have Amazon Prime. If I get cancer, I don't really need God, I just need to go to the BC Cancer Clinic. It's very easy for us to, to forget, to not look at all of these things as God is involved, or to see this world as a gift. So the snake is the most, and we are the most in history. Again, you may not look at yourself, especially with social media, it's like hard to see ourselves at the top, because we're always comparing ourselves with the, the best in the world at whatever it is. But in this, in this moment in history, we are people with the most, and so there is a huge tendency for us towards pride. And one of the easiest ways that that happens is we forget God. We demote him. We may not think of promoting ourselves, but we demote him as like a buddy or below us. Something to think about and something that's implicit within this story. So we have the snake who has this amazing potential. He's the most clever animal that God has created. What's he going to do? And here's where we're told the last thing about the snake, that he speaks, which is super weird. Okay? It's just really odd. But before we look into it, we kind of have to shake a little bit of chronological snobbery off of our shoulders. Because when we look back at the story, what we often do is we're like, like I know snakes don't talk, but I guess like, these people seem like they don't really understand how the world works. Maybe they thought snakes talked. They didn't think snakes talked. In fact, they'd probably seen more snakes than all of us put together, okay? They understand. They're not like, oh, that one talked, that one didn't. It's really weird that a snake talks. So something else is going on here. We have to put ourselves, try to put ourselves back into their shoes again. Snakes are really weird, not because they talk once in a while, but for other reasons. Remember, let's remind ourselves of of where we are in Genesis 2. We started with this barren desert. Then there's this place called Eden, and within that, God creates this garden, and then there's some trees right at the center. So Adam and Eve, the people we'll see next week, are at the tree. And the snake, where do snakes live? They don't live in gardens, generally, at least they wouldn't think so. They live in deserts. So the snake is not supposed to be in the garden. He's already moved. It's out of its place. And then snakes are weird, too, because you see them on the ground, but they come up from underneath the ground. So, like, where are they coming from? And so we've got to remember here the ancient Near Eastern perspective of the world. They had what's called a three-tiered universe that they looked at. If you want to go to the next slide here, Caleb. So they thought up, up above is where the gods lived, the heavens. This flatland here is where we live. And remember, if you think of that, then mountains become sacred places because they're closer to the heavens. But then they also have this underworld, the Sheol, which is where uh, the dead go. And then there's just these, the, the home or the great deeps of waters that are down there. So snakes are weird because they come up from under the ground. It looks like they're coming up from the tahome or the great deep, or from Sheol, the place of the dead. And then they come up onto dry land. And you might think, well, there's lots of animals that do that. Why don't they think all these animals you know, are bad? If you see a gopher, it doesn't look like it belongs in the water, right? In fact, it looks like if you're like, I think if you get in the water, you're in deep trouble, buddy. Um, but a snake is different. If you see a snake, it looks like it's wet. And if you watch a snake move, like this, what it looks like... It's swimming. I know. It's, I know. You know what's crazy about this? I, I looked at these last night and just to figure out which GIF I was going to use and I was just like, this is disgusting. <laughs> I so, thanks for that reaction. But the, you see how it moves? It just, doesn't it, look, it doesn't look like it belongs. It looks like something's wrong with it. It looks like it belongs in the water, doesn't it? We should just move on, okay? Just go to the next slide, Caleb, before someone gets sick. But do you see what I'm saying? you got to look at it from their perspective. It looks like a wet creature coming from the water up onto the ground. It looks like it's coming from down there. So, and there's loads and loads of stories, actually, in the ancient Near East about snakes being down there. There's one story, for example, of a god. Every day he brings the, the sun up and carries it. And then his sun, of course, goes down, and so he goes down into the deeps, and he has to every day battle snakes down there to bring the sun back up again. So this is the ancient Near Eastern mind. Snakes belong down there. But here we see these snakes coming up on the ground. And not only is the snake now coming up on the ground into the human space, but it's talking. It's doing human stuff. It's crossing over a boundary that it's not supposed to. Genesis is very clear. We have a lot in common with animals, but they are not humans. And so it's corrupt. excuse me, it's transgressing a boundary. And in the ancient Near Eastern mind, if a snake speaks, it's going to speak with a voice from underneath, from Sheol. Again, listen to what Tim Mackey says. The Hebrew root letters that make up the noun snake, nahash, are also the root letters that make up the verb nahayash, which means to practice sorcery, specifically to call up spirits of the dead so you can communicate with them so that they can tell you the future, which is divination or necromancing, a word I'm sure you all use this week. So not only is the snake speaking, which crosses the animal-human boundary, but it's speaking, they would think, from below. It's speaking on behalf of the dead, which in that society is a way to to learn the future, especially in moments when God is silent. If you read through the rest of the biblical story, you'll see sometimes kings will go and they'll they'll try to do some sort of sorcery or magic. Because they think God is silent, I need to go and find someone to speak to me, to lead and guide me. Interestingly, as we move into Genesis 3, one of the things that commentators notice is where is God in all of this? That's what's happening, is they're listening to another voice from below. And not only does the snake speak on behalf of the dead, but it uses speech to question the nature of God. It's speaking almost like it's on behalf of God. So again, if we look back to the picture, if you want to go back to that, Caleb, it's speaking from below, on the ground, but it's also speaking as if it's God, as if it's up in the heavens. So the snake comes up from the ground. It talks to the humans on behalf of God, which is transgressing all of the boundaries that have just been set up, this world that God has set up. And in by doing so, the author is signaling to us that this, this creature, which is the most a room, has not chosen a path of wisdom, but has chosen a path of chaos and is about to release chaos into the world. So that's a bit of what's happening, I think, what's happening with the snake. And I hope at least it's, it's interesting and helps us to become better readers of the Bible, but I highly doubt that most of us are gonna leave here and this afternoon run into a talking snake and then be like, bro, I'm not gonna to listen to you because I don't do necromancing. Like, that's probably not gonna happen. And so, what we need to do is try to pull this forward a little bit. How does it actually, maybe how could it apply? There's many different ways, but let me just point out two that I thought of this week. First, I wanna look at the difference between testing and tempting. Last week, again, we looked at trees, and I said that the trees are places of testing. So the way that the story goes, once again, is that there's this desert, and then Eden, and then a garden, and then there's these two trees at the center. We'll look more at that next week. And the humans start out as dirt creatures, but they're brought into the garden. So there's this this idea that the the humans are eventually going to end up at the tree. They're going to end up in a place where they're going to be at a test. So it's part of, you could say, almost God's design. But this week we see another character added in this snake. It's a creature who has created good, but it uses its elevated arumeness not for good but for evil. And so it is not going to be a a wisdom bringer. It's going to be a chaos bringer. And the way that it does that is through tempting. It's different. And I point this out because uh, I've got several people have asked me the question, what's the difference between a testing and a tempting? Like, when I just experience things in life that I, I don't know the difference, what is the difference in the Bible? And I, I have two answers to that. The Bible, the, the, the most biblical answer I can think of, actually, is an, it's an invitation to keep reading. All these questions that come up for us in, in Genesis 2 and 3, really wherever, they're supposed to be there. And so ask the questions. Ask any question that you want. That's great. And then let's keep reading together. And I hope that we can be a place that does that. The questions that we have, actually, that's, they should naturally arise. And so it's a great question, and the Bible's answer would be, let's keep reading together. But the second, I, I do think there is also, like, as a pastor, a, a responsibility to respond and try to give a good answer. I'm not great at giving short, pithy, cogent answers, so I'm going to enlist some help from someone who has been pastoring a lot longer than me. His name is Daryl Johnson. He says this. A test is something meant to prove one's character and in the process improve it. A temptation is meant to entice a person to sin, to bring a person down in some way. God doesn't tempt us. God tests us in order to grow us. This is a great way, I think, of saying it. It's very helpful. God tests us because he wants us to grow. So we will all face trees in our lives. We'll all face these moments that are important, that are moments of decision in our lives. And they may seem very, very difficult They may seem like temptations, but they're part of God's plan, I would say, because he wants to show us what's underneath. He wants us to choose life. He wants us to choose him, and in those areas that are deficient, he wants us to grow into the person of Jesus. There is an invitation in that. But there's also temptation, which is a voice that comes alongside of us, and we'll look next week at, at the words of, of what the snake says and what this voice says, sounds like. But this voice is not coming from God. It is a chaos monster. It's something looking to unleash darkness into our world. And it's a spiritual being that's aligned itself with the darkness, used its gifts, its good gifts, in a way that does not honor and glorify God, that does not bring about flourishing, but brings about destruction and chaos into the world. And that's the second thing and last thing that I want to say. That we learn, maybe one thing we can pull ahead from this story is that there is, according to the story, a dark spiritual force at work within our world. There's a dark spiritual force at work within our world. And as modern people, this is really hard for us to hear and understand and to actually believe and to live into. Uh, The eminent uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor talks about why this is so hard for us. Uh, because we're di- he says we're different than ancient people. Um, he says ancient people thought of themselves as porous. Uh, you're welcome for this, by the way. This is my drawing last night at about 11 o'clock at night. But basically, It's the same idea that we are people who live here and, you know, in the biblical worldview, for example, there'd be all these spiritual forces, gods, demons, transcendence, spirits that are up there. Ancient people thought of themselves as porous, which, like, they're at a dotted line around them. That means they could be acted on by all of these different spirits. All of these forces would act on them and they were kind of powerless against them. But he says, we are buffered. You can go to the next one. This is how we think of our, he says, especially over the last 500 years in the West, it's like we've created a dome around ourselves. This is what he says about it. The buffered self is the agent who no longer fears demons, spirits, magic forces. More radically, those things no longer impinge. They don't exist for him. Whatever threats or other meaning they proffered at other times in history don't get to us. They can't act on us. And and so we are much more like this picture here on the left, buffered. That's how we think of ourselves in our world. And Taylor, and I would agree with him, he says there's some real good to this, to being a buffered person. That we have been able to liberate ourselves from some of the superstition that has existed in past times. And it's also meant the rise of science, which has led to many great discoveries and it's led to the uh, elongation of life, for example. You know, when I had cancer, I'm glad that when I went to the doctor, he wasn't like, well, let's just cut you open and get some of that bad juju out of your bones. He was like, oh, this is the plan. We know how to help fix this thing. But Taylor also says there's a lot of downsides to being buffered. It's not just a win in every category. Let me just mention two areas. The first is this. He says life ends up feeling flat and empty because we don't just become buffered from god and the evil demons in the world we become buffered from any source of transcendence any bigger story that people were a part of and so he calls this condition the modern malaise which basically just means like why we feel like the it's because we blocked ourselves off from this bigger story from any source of transcendence and so he uses the word flat that life often just feels flat feels meaningless but here's the second issue which is really important for where we're going today. Listen to what commentator Fred Craddock says. The talk of a spiritual world may seem very primitive to an enlightened modern, to the buffered self. But we have not, by the announcement that we do not believe in the dark forces of the spiritual world, reduced one whit the amount of personal and corporate evil in the world. The names of the enemies have been changed, but the battles still rage. So what he's saying here is that we experience the same amount of evil. We experience injustice. We experience war. We experience famine. We experience tragedy, just like every other person in history. But when we remove this bigger story, there's no, when there's no snake left to blame, what do we do? Who's left to blame? Each other. And so what we do is we take the anger and the hatred and the vitriol, which at one point in time, in a bigger spiritual story, would be pointed at Satan, and we point it at each other. And we say, you're the ultimate problem with the world. And again, as I said last week, if my flourishing is the ultimate good, if I'm basically God and my wants and needs are the most important thing to be expressed in the world, and you get in the way of that, then I'm going to come at you with all the anger that I would have towards hell you are going to be satan itself and i think as i i can't think of a better way to describe what's happening especially like in the comment sections online people read it and they're like i can't believe people would say that stuff well if they have no other place they have no other place to paint that put that put that anger where else are they going to say it we have become the problem and then here's the other thing maybe hits a little more close to home if i can't find a satan to blame a dark force to blame And if I can't find anyone else to blame, there's only one place left. And I will blame myself. I will learn to hate myself. Because I am ultimately the cause of everything that's wrong in my life. I am human garbage. I am not enough. And I know for some of us in this room, we know that story oh so well. That's the constant refrain in our minds, the thing that mobilizes us into the world. Or for some of us, it just functions more like a movie director. You never see it on screen. You never see this person on screen, but that's behind the scenes, running absolutely everything in our lives. And next week, we'll talk about this. As humans, we do share some of the blame for what's wrong with the world. We'll talk about this next week. But that is always within the story of the Bible. The, the things that we do wrong, the evils that we commit, is always within two bigger stories. The, the, biggest, the second story is the story of what we have done as humans in the world the cumulative effect of the plaque that we have put into the world, of the darkness that we have committed. Your your story always exists within that story in the Bible, and then that story exists with a much bigger story, which is the story of this dark force in the world that from the very beginning has been working against us not to bring good, but to bring evil, not to bring light, but to bring darkness. And the story of the Bible is really clear. At every turn, this dark force is working against us, telling us not to partner with God, telling us not to become the true humans that God has set us out to be. And it gets so bad through the story. We're at the very beginning, but it gets so bad in the story that by the time Jesus comes around, he has one word to describe what's going on with humanity. He says, we're enslaved. We're enslaved to this dark force, to this power, where basically we've become powerless. We're imprisoned and we can't get out. And so Jesus comes and there's all this hope because what we see in, in the stories of Jesus is that he's coming and he's dealing with these dark forces. He's casting demons out of people. And there's all this great hope that he may be the one to liberate us. But then when the time comes, the ultimate time comes to set us free to deal with the ultimate chaos monster, to deal with the Roman oppression that's happening to God's people, what happens to Jesus is that he actually becomes just like any other person with oversized potential in the world. He takes the position not of a powerful ruler, but as an enslaved one. And he goes up to his tree, and he goes onto his tree, and he dies. But then something really weird happens in the story. The earliest followers of Jesus said that he didn't stay dead, but that they saw him after. And here's what one of them writes in Hebrews. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives. This is what they understood Jesus to do. And it continues on, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those of us who are tempted basically referencing exactly what's going on in Genesis 3. God has released us and freed us from this power that holds over us and has held over humanity forever. And he's also with us, each one of us, in these moments of tempting that we face. So here's where I'm going to close this morning. Uh, I've said, uh, I I guess this is one of the things I say. I say, I'm going to be real honest here. Someone said, it sounds like then you weren't being honest the whole rest of the time. I'm going to be personal here. I don't like this language of dark forces in the world and spiritual evil. It is not native to me. I think it's super weird, just to be candid. It makes me extremely uncomfortable. And I don't want to push our church to be a a group of people who just sees a demon behind every bush. I don't really think that's the answer. But I am pushed in the direction of discomfort and to see the world this way, not only because it's the language of the Bible, but because I want to hope this kind of hope. Because I want to see this kind of Jesus. That's why. You know, I want to hope for more than just slight change in my life and in our lives. I want, to, I want to hope that this kind of Jesus could free us. That there could be this kind of freedom for you and for me. You know, I live in the downtown east side. And when I walk to my other job every day, I walk through Oppenheimer Park. It's easy to become calloused for me. I want to believe that this kind of freedom exists for me and for everybody in that park. I want to find a home for the anger and the rage that I feel in my heart that doesn't have to be pointed at someone else. It doesn't cause me to dehumanize them, and it doesn't cause me to dehumanize myself, but it can be pointed at the dark forces in the world. And it can teach me, Jesus can teach me, to learn how to forgive other people if my anger is ultimately not pointed at them. And I want to believe that when I'm faced with the snake, when I hear that voice, when I'm at the trees in my life, that it's not just me and my willpower that need to be there in that moment of time, but that this Jesus is there, standing with me, the risen Jesus with me in those moments of temptation, interceding for me, helping with me, helping me, empowering me. And I don't want to miss out on that just because it's uncomfortable for me, which it is. It's super uncomfortable for me. I want to believe that this kind of freedom is possible. I want to see this kind of Jesus at work. And so as we, let's that's something for you to consider for yourself. As we come to this time of response, we're going to do some things we do every week. We're going to sing some songs, but maybe these songs aren't just songs. They're battle cries against this dark force in the world, and they're invitations for this Jesus to come to heal, to resurrect us. As we pray, maybe they're not just us sharing our burdens with our friends, but there are moments where we can actually go to battle with each other, where we call on this risen Jesus to come and to help. As we come to the table, which we'll invite you to do, maybe this is not just bread and de-alcoholized wine that tastes terrible, but it's actually a place where God promises to meet us, this God, this Jesus. Will you believe? Will you walk into that with us this morning? Let's, let's pray to close. God the Snake, uh, thank you for this story. Thank you that it makes us uncomfortable. It is super uncomfortable for me, just, just personally, and I'm sure for many of us in this room. But we want to see you. We want to experience you. We want to experience your healing, your freedom. And we need your freedom. We need you to liberate us from the places where we're just stuck, the places that we are enslaved. So God, we just invite you to do your work today, to meet us here May we become open to your work and may we become open to your people uh, as we continue to worship together. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.